Well, it's good to be with you, church family. Um, you're stuck with me today. Uh, Steve is with his... Uh, <laughs> stop that now. <laughs> Steve is uh, with his wife where he should be and their new baby girl. Um, and so I'm going to be filling in today. But I have been reflecting for a while on what I might um, share on today. Uh, in our youth studies on Friday nights, we have been going through the book of James. Um, and what's been really encouraging to me uh, as the book of Daniel started is the, the amazing correlation. Uh, some of the things that Steve would say were the exact same things that I had said um, because we're all coming from the same source. As you've been going through the book of Daniel, no doubt you've been seeing the theme of, of going through trials and times of testing. And we have a very practical example in, in Daniel, but also in his uh, three friends. Um, we've also been going through the book of James as a family. We homeschool and we have a, uh, a Bible time in the morning. And the book we're going through is a, actually it's a kid's inductive Bible study on the book of James. And it's called, Boy, Have I Got Problems. That's the name of the book. And it, what it does, it, um, it uh, puts the uh, student in the place of an uh, advice columnist who is answering to troubled kids as they are writing in letters about everyday things that kids, kids struggle with, the trials and tests that even kids uh, go through, uh, so that kids can do their own study of James to say, how can I, how can I handle that little situation? What does Scripture say about, about that? There's examples of kids writing in letters to uh, uh, talk to the advice columnist about being called certain names and how they just... Um, you know, how that makes them feel. And so going into the book of James, you see the example of the, the tongue um, and what damage the tongue can uh, do. Um, you have, have a person who's been desperately waiting for the opportunity to, to try out for the basketball team and the week of the tryouts breaks his leg. So he's unable to try out for the team, much less uh, make the team. And so the, 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 the student's able to go and write a letter to uh, that, that person based on what they found out from James chapter 1. And so it's just a, a really neat study. And James has just been rattling around in my head uh, for a while. And so we've been talking about the issue of trials and, and, and testings in church here. And I thought what I'd do is I'd look at the uh, beginning uh, part of James. And we'd walk through and look at um, some, some very practical, uh, I guess, uh, things that we can implement in our lives that help us to uh, get through trials. Because as Steve said, and I said on Friday nights, um, the only way out of a trial is through it. Many times we try to pray ourselves out of the trial, but that's not why God gave you the trial to begin with. Um, you guys are very familiar with the parable of the sower, uh, no doubt. In uh, Luke chapter 8, you can still turn to James, but I'd like you just to briefly uh, turn to Luke chapter 8. It's also in Matthew 13, but we'll look at the Luke account here. Um, it really should be called the parable of the soils, because if you remember... Uh, the seed represents God's word, and the seed is being scattered, and it's landing on the soils, the hearts of men and women. And some of the seed is being received and taking root, and some isn't. And, of course, the disciples want to know the meaning of the parable. And so in, in Luke chapter 8, verse, beginning of verse 11, Jesus explains the meaning. He says this, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Matthew says that they, they received it, but they didn't understand it. And understanding has that idea of this, believing. They heard it, they received this, but I'm not going the full, full way with that. I don't believe it. And so it's snatched away. But then in verse 13, he says this, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, Receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. Or in time of testing. Matthew tells us in times of trials and persecutions related to the word. And those are people that receive the word, but it's an emotional response. It all sounds great, and you get really emotional about it, and you accept it, and I'm going to go with this. But because it doesn't penetrate any further into the heart, no root takes place. And so when times of testing and trial come up, we reveal that that seed never took root in there and it's gone. No true lasting salvation has taken place there. Anyone who lives in this world endures some measure of trouble, right? 
We go through difficulties. That's just the result of the, the fall. That's the result of human sin, human nature, the result of a world and society that's corrupted by sin. And scripture always teaches to that. Even people like Job. Job says, yet man is born to trouble, just as the sparks fly upward. You're just born to trouble. David says, be not far from me, for trouble is near. Speaking to God. Just be close to me, God, because trouble's always near. Even Solomon, the great pessimist, (laughs) he says, Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. All is vanity and grasping for the wind. All his days are sorrowful, his work burdensome. Even in the nights, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. That's Solomon speaking in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And of course, Jesus famously said that in this world, we're going to have tribulation. And we take comfort in the other half of what he said. What did he say? Take heart, I've overcome the world, right? Yet how do we really put that into practice? When you read the book of James, James is an immensely practical book. If you are a newer believer, you're, you're younger in the faith, that is the book to go to. I'm having you turn there to James James, the theme of James really this is this. It's, it's a major, major emphasis on the test of a per- person's uh, faith and encouraging them to spiritual maturity. That really is really what we see in James. And if a person's faith is, is genuine, it's going to prove itself. It's going to prove itself through times of difficulty, times of trouble, uh, no matter what the source of the, the, the trouble is. And since the focus sort of is on the genuine faith of the believer and the maturity of that genuine believer, then the people who consider themselves Christians should recognize that that faith that is reliable only when things are going well isn't a saving faith. That's what James is saying. If your faith is only strong and secure when things are, everything is going perfectly just as you want it, that's not a saving faith. It's a worthless faith, is what James will tell us. He's going to show us that when faith is nothing more than an empty uh, profession or a sentiment, it's not based on divine truth. And so the fire of of trouble, trials, testing, is going to burn it up. And so what I wanted to start today with, really by way of introduction into this book of of James, is, is to give you... A broader example of what scripture tells us as to the purposes of the Lord allowing trials to come into our life. And we've been seeing it in Daniel. Clearly, God's hand is in that. Daniel's meant to go go through the trial of the lion's den, right? His friends go through the trial of the fiery uh, furnace. But what are the, what's the purpose behind that? Well, well I'm going to give you eight of those that we find in scripture. Because perhaps you're in a different trial or a test today. And you're trying to figure that out. Like, what is the pur- why is God having me go through this? There may be a different purpose than you are really thinking of. So I want to give you some um, uh, scriptural um, definitions and, and examples of why we're supposed to go through these trials, why God allows us uh, to do that. And number one is this. It's to test the strength of our faith. That's probably the one we all fall back on. We all know. Uh, God's just testing me to see how strong my uh, my faith is because they'll reveal to us uh, the weaknesses as well, right? Shows us how weak we are in our faith, can show us how strong we are uh, in our faith. Um, and way back in Exodus, I don't need to turn there, but Exodus 16, you might remember, you know, a million plus people have just wandered into the desert with no food. <laughs> and God says, well, I'm going to provide them with some food. I'm going to rain some bread from heaven, right? We know that's it's manna. And he's raining bread from heaven for the people, but he commands them this. He commands them that they can only gather one portion a day. Do you remember why he said that? He says in 16 verse 4, to test them. You can only collect one portion a day. You can't gather more because if you did, what would happen? It'd rot, right? And worms would come out. And unless you're like a bird or you like worms, (laughs) that's not going to be very beneficial to you. You can only gather one. And the reason I'm only going to let you gather one portion a day, I want to test them. Do they really have faith in me? Do they really trust that I will provide tomorrow? That tomorrow I'll wake up and there will be bread again. 
And some of us are in those places. We're going through such difficulty, right? And God provides. We're like, but then the next thing comes along. We're like, oh, gosh, I don't know if God's going to provide. We're like the people of Israel waiting for the manna. Like, I don't know if he's going to, if he's going to show up here. God always provides. And he does put us in situations that cause us to trust him. No matter what, I'm going to rely on him. Test the strength of our faith. The second one is to humble us. That's probably not our favorite, <laughs> right? To humble us. They can remind, that, remind us that the blessings that we have, the uh, achievements we've accomplished, um, they're not the result of, of me. They're, they're not the result of my own personal endeavors, but rather the Lord's faithfulness. That's why he's blessed. Um, Paul recognized that. You know, he was, uh, he was given a, a great blessing. He was allowed to have certain visions of, of paradise and to hear things no man has ever heard. And he was commanded to not, not utter those to anyone else. And I, I bet you he was a little tempted to share. He's like, I have seen something that is incredible. But he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So just in case I would be tempted and I'm in the flesh, I could be tempted to sort of boast in that, to, to brag about that. God gave me a little something on the side here to make sure I'd remain humble. He said, that was just for me. God gave me something. You don't need to go tell everyone else about it. Look how holy I am. God loves me a whole lot more than you because I have a special revelation. I've met people like that, though. Have you not? I've got a special revelation. I've got those things. God obviously shines his favor upon me much more. And when I hear things like that, I go, well, I hope a messenger of Satan is coming your way because you need some buffeting because of the pride. Trials come to humble us that we might not take glory in ourselves. A third reason we find in Scripture is to wean us from our dependence on worldly things. Because we are prone to do that, aren't we? We're prone to rely on the material possessions we've accumulated, on worldly knowledge, on, on success, on recognition. And the more we're tempted to rely on them and, and instead of the Lord, um, the more I think the Lord increases those trials so that we would come away uh, from them. You, think of a, you think of someone like Moses who was raised in Pharaoh's house. You think about being raised a child of the Pharaoh, brought up as a, as a, as a prince, <laughs> receiving all the highest learning and the pampering you could possibly get. I think Moses had a little growing to go through, didn't he? So after 40 years in Midian as a shepherd, God calls him. After 40 years being a shepherd, God calls him to take the people out of Egypt. And then there's some initial resistance, right, at the beginning. But, but why does he wait that long to call Moses? You know, Hebrews gives us a little example. You can turn there if you like to. It's Hebrews chapter 11, but I'll just read it to you. It's the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11 tells us what uh, gives us a glimpse as to why that was in hebrews 11 verse 24 by faith moses when he became of age refused to be called the son of pharaoh's daughter why choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of god than to enjoy and this is the part you need to hear the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of christ greater riches than the treasures of egypt he looked to the reward he looked to the reward. That's, that's a pretty amazing thing about it. My mind can think of some pretty amazing things when I think of the treasures of Egypt. Maybe I've seen too many movies. I don't know. But I think, wow. And he said, I would rather suffer affliction with God's people than to sort of partake of those, those things that are passing and probably will lead me to sin, he says. Do you guys remember Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in, uh, in John chapter 6, um, <laughs> I love how Jesus d does this. You know, the, the, the whole need for food in that chapter, that didn't take Jesus by surprise, right? I mean, Jesus didn't look up and go, oh, there's a lot of people here. What are we going to do? But it looks that way because in John chapter 6, he goes, Jesus lifted up his eyes, right? It's like he was, you know, somewhere else in verse 5. 
And seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, why is Jesus asking Philip that? This is Jesus we're talking about. Oh, here comes the multitude. Oh, Philip. Uh, Philip, what are we, we going to do? There's a lot of people coming. We're not going to have enough bread for this. Verse uh, 6 tells us, This he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he's going to do. Hey, Philip, come here. There's a whole lot of people coming our way. Uh, what should we do? What do you think? Where are we going to get enough money to buy the bread? And Philip is in the worldly. He's seeing the material. He fails the test here. I will spoil it for you here. Philip answers him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. I mean, there's not enough money here to even get a person a crumb. I don't know. What are we going to do, Jesus? <laughs> he failed. He was looking at the material. He wasn't looking at the Lord. So that's a great example there. He does it to wean us from our dependence on worldly things. We don't need those things. We look to the reward. Fourth reason, to call us to eternal hope. Eternal hope or heavenly hope. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul uh, writes this in verse 14. He says this, Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. And then in verse 16, he says this, Therefore, we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, right? Even though I'm getting older, I'm going to die. The inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. But the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He basically is saying, because I know that, that God who raised up Jesus is going to raise me up, I don't worry about these things. I, I'm thinking of the eternal. I'm thinking of the heavenly hope. This affliction I'm going through, it's light. It's, moment, it's, it's temporary. It's not a big deal. He's like, I'm looking uh, beyond that. We go through trials to remind us of that. Number five, to reveal what we really love. Sometimes we have to go through trials because we love in something more than we love God. And it, and it shows us that. Our, our dream of success in a particular area shot down. Our hope for this taken away. And it reels who do you really love? We drove to Heathrow yesterday, my wife and I, to, to meet with a, an American couple that are friends of ours in the ministry, and, and they were just in a layover in, uh, in, in Heathrow, and so we took them to London for the day. And, uh, and they're a younger couple, and, and I was just talking to them about their growth and the things they experienced over uh, the years. And I've known some of the things they've gone through. I know some of the difficulties. They tried to go on the mission field to Japan. They had their hearts set on that. Um, uh, the young man had a, a goal in mind of what he wanted to do. He wanted a big old video ministry, and he wanted to go to missionaries, and he wanted to video their story and get it on blogs and get it on Facebook, and he wanted to, you know, he had all these kind of plans. But God had different plans, and they got sort of halfway there, and they ended up um, in South Carolina at uh, SIMUSA, which is a missionary sending organization. And it's not really where he wanted to go. It's not really where he, he thought they would, they would be, and I said, you know, so what, how'd you, how have you been dealing with this? And he began to just talk to me about how God has taken him through different things in his life because he kept having these different idols. You know, or, or early before he was married, it was a certain girl. And I remember her. She, you know, they were engaged and it was that's all. And then just out of nowhere, she just dropped the whole thing. And it, it completely devastated him. But he told me yesterday, he's like, but I remember why that happened because I realized that she was my idol. I realized that I loved her far more than I love God. And so he took her away from me, and I was in despair. I was in depression. I didn't know how to deal with that. And finally, I came out of that going, God, what do you want me to learn from this? And then he brought me my wife. I'm like, well, that's how he does it, doesn't he? But he lots of times will take us through things that will help reveal what we really love. Abraham had to go through that trial, didn't he? How much do you love me, God? Uh, how, much do, how, how much do you love me? I, I, want you to go, I want you to go sacrifice your son, the, the one I, I promised to you. The one, the, one you, the one you promised. The one I was waiting for forever, you finally gave me. Yeah, I want you to go sacrifice that one. How much do you really love me? He had to go through quite a trial, didn't he? But his faith was strong in the Lord at that point. He didn't waver. 
He went up that mountain with the son, carrying the wood. Son saying, uh, where's the ram? <laughs> oh, God's going to provide a sacrifice. And Hebrews tells us that he really believed that. He really did believe. He said, even, even if I do have to kill my son, this is the son of promise. God can raise him up from the dead. That is a faith. He trusted his God. Number six, to teach us to value God's blessings as well. Reason tells us to value the things of the world. Pleasure, uh, ease, whatever it might be. But through trials, faith tells us to value the spiritual things of God with which he has blessed us abundantly. His word, his care, his provision, his strength, his salvation. Uh, The heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, they all rejected the world for the goodness of God's gifts, and so must we. And we do it by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 12 tells us. We've got to value God's blessings in our life. Um, and those are the spiritual blessings, not just the material things that we see. Seven, to develop in enduring strength. To develop enduring Strength. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I take pleasure in infirmities. I don't think I've said it that way myself for me. I take pleasure in them, but Paul did. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. Boy, he had the right perspective. Those things make me stronger Hebrews eleven thirty two to 34. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. We know who we're talking about there. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to the flight to flight the armies of the aliens. Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. They had incredible strength because of the one in whom they trusted and whom the strength came from. And the eighth example we give, we get from scripture is to enable us to better help others in their trials. We go through trials so that when others are going through a similar one, we can help them get through that. One of my favorites is um, in Luke 22. You might remember the Lord reveals something to Simon Peter that I would never want revealed to me. I just got to say. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded. <laughs> That's an interesting phrase right there anyway. <laughs> He's demanded that he may sift you as wheat. Oh, really, Lord? Satan demanded that of you? What a punk. I mean, what is, how can he demand anything of you, Lord, right? That's Satan. Does he know who you are? I can't believe that. What'd you say about that? Did you did you do did you do the whole get behind me Satan line with him? Did you did you do that one? What did Jesus answer? Tell tell me, Jesus. You said no. I'm Peter for crying out loud. I mean, I, I've been everywhere with you. I, Satan demands me. What you you defended me, right? No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says this, but I've prayed for you. How often have you been in a trial and someone says, oh, I'll pray for you. You're like, oh, thank you. Well, pray for me. doesn't help me right now. Peter has Satan right on his back. He's asked Jesus, I want to I take that guy down. And she says, okay, I'm going to go pray for him. <laughs> but why is he going to pray for him? I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Your faith should not fail. And why? When you return to me, go strengthen your brethren. Amazing. You see what, what Jesus has told him there? Satan's going to really take you down. It's going to take you away from me. And, and, and Peter right there, he's like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be in prison with you. I'll die on the cross with you. He says, no, the rooster's going to crow. <laughs> you're going to be gone. He says, you're going to go. But I pray that your faith will become strong. And when you come back, and you will come back, Peter, now you're going to be able to strengthen others. 
if we don't go through the difficulties of life and come out on the other side, we're, we're useless to people. We cannot help others get through trials. And so those are just, by way of a very long introduction, eight reasons I wanted to give you as to why we might go through trials. Because perhaps you just keep thinking of the things we've seen in Daniel or whatever. Well, you know, you just got to get through that because he's testing their faith. Oh, it's just a test of my faith. Oh, it's just a test of my faith. Far more than that, God accomplishes through the difficulties of life that he puts you through. And I want to emphasize that. Trials are holy things. You are not being attacked by Satan. I, I know I'm going on a limb here. Read the book of James. Maybe we should do that. Let's look at James. They are from God. Temptations, on the other hand, are unholy things. Those are not from God because God says that he doesn't tempt anyone. So that's what we're going to look at. And when you look at James, what's fascinating here is that the Greek word for trials and temptations is the same root Greek word. But when you read the beginning of, uh, of James, it uses the word tempta- uh, uh, sorry, trials. And then in, beginning of verse 12, it starts to use the word uh, temptation. But it's the same root Greek word. So then what determines what word we're going to use in the English? Well, context does. We look at what, what he's talking about. And that's what we're going to look at right now. And we're just going to delve into the beginning of this book in James. We'll begin in verse uh, 2. Now, this is James. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And I probably would have started the letter that way if I were the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't. He says he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's very humble, isn't he? And he's writing this to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So he's writing to um, uh, Christians during persecution during trials and they're no doubt going through these difficult things and so he's trying to instruct them as to how to come through those trials and let's start in verse two my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing if any of you lacks wisdom Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing uh, letter by the half-brother of Jesus. I just pray, Lord, today as we dig into your word, Lord, that you would allow it to penetrate our hearts, that it would take root, that we would find strength and encouragement in times of trial, in times of testing, because we all go through them. And that we would look beyond the seen things to the unseen things as to why you're doing this and what the benefit is. God, would you just show us clearly today for your glory? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the beginning here, uh, starting in verse 2. We're talking about trials here, and and I've titled this uh, Turning Trials into Triumphs. If you're a note taker, you've probably already been taking notes because I just gave you eight things to take notes about. Um, but, um, I, I, you know, I talked about all these things. If trials are this productive, I guess the question becomes, you know, how do I get through them? And that's what we're going to look at. And here in James, James is going to give us uh, five sort of key means for persevering through trials. And they're probably fairly obvious. You probably already noticed them as we went through here. And beginning of verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I like that when because it's not an if. <laughs> Trials are guaranteed. 
Uh, but the word count is to consider, and it's in the um, imperative, so it's a command. And he's commanding us to have a joyful attitude through the trials. Ah, boy, is that even possible? <laughs> a, a genuine joy, not a putting on a pretense, not a gritting of the teeth, right? But real joy, real joy. Last year, I had the privilege of going through the book of Philippians, one of my favorite, with the young people. And as you know, uh, that is the letter of joy, isn't it? And Paul is writing that letter of joy from prison. And in prison, he is talking about um, all, all the things that allow him to have joy, essentially. How do you have joy in that kind of situation? And in, in Philippians uh, chapter 1, he's speaking to the people he's writing uh, uh, to, and he talks about uh, the fact that where he is, uh, where God has placed him, even if it's prison, it's allowed for the furtherance of the gospel. He's gospel-minded. It's going on. And that's why I can have joy. I'm talking to people I would have no access to otherwise. So God is in this. God is, uh, God is good. Um, and then he starts talking to people uh, back, back at the church, uh, talking about having you know, uh, one spirit, one mind, striving together. And he says, because you have the faith of the gospel. We're all the same faith. I mean, I, I might be here, but you know, you're there, but we're still all one. We're all unified. And uh, he found strength in that, and it helped him to have uh, joy in his, in his life and joy in his situations. And all through this, he just keeps using um, the word joy or rejoicing or giving reasons as to why he might, uh, might have joy. And, and you know, if the, the, probably the biggest one is at the end when he says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I mean, he's given all these reasons. We don't have time to read through them all. Uh, but he says, just in the end of it all, just rejoice in the Lord always. It doesn't matter what's happening, but do it always. Paul had a greater value in the eternal, spiritual, God-honoring things, and that's where he found his joy. And it's those things that we value. Warren Wearsby put it this way, our values determine our evaluations. So if we value comfort more than character, then trials are going to upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, uh, we're not going to be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and we forget the future, the trials will make us bitter and not better. Trials are to make us better. And the key on it, taking it from Philippians, is value. Paul counted all things rubbish for the surpassing greatness of knowing his Lord and Savior. Everything didn't matter to him. And so he looked at things with eternal lenses, eternal eyes. I found encouragement yesterday talking to our, our friends uh, because even the difficulties they, they've had, others I can't share, but they're able to look past those things and go, but God has accomplished these things from that and we're better for it and not bitter. And that's a big difference. It's one letter difference, but it's a big difference. <laughs> we're supposed to have a joyful attitude. Have a joyful attitude. That's number one. Have a joyful attitude. Count it all joy all of it when you fall into various trials and you're going to ask yourself if you're looking at the temporary if you're looking at the 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 physical if you're looking at those things and not the spiritual number two is to have an understanding mind and this is in verse three he says this knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience knowing knowing that the testing of your faith that's gnosko that's a full understanding of something a full understanding. Christians know from experience that God, God, God's word tells us that we're going to go through trials of testing and that's going to test our faith. But it's going to produce uh, patience. Patience is usually translated, this word hupomene uh, is usually translated patience. But I think here it really is talking about the end product of that, which is endurance. Some translations put the word endurance there. And so the idea here is that these trials come, right, to prove. That's what testing is, is to prove or disprove if it's not genuine. We talked about genuine faith at the beginning of this. Uh, prove something. Prove your faith. And that through that, you're going to be able to endure. Patience is only needed as long as the trial is present, right? I mean, once the trial ends, you don't need patience anymore. But endurance is long-lasting. That's a difference there. It's permanent. 
And it speaks of an inner quality of strength which increases each time a trial has been patiently endured. And that's why we can say, both Steve and I can say, the only way out of a trial is through it. You have to endure it. Remember the great lesson of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God could have saved them from the fire before they went in it, but they had to go in it first. It had, their faith had to be tested. It had to be proven. And they had to come out of that knowing, okay, um, God is definitely faithful all the time. I remember I, I foolishly ran an L.A. marathon <laughs> years ago. And, and you wouldn't guess it, but at that time, it was not sunny and bright and beautiful. It was a monsoon. It was horrific conditions. And at first, it was a novelty because it doesn't rain that much in Los Angeles. In fact, probably never. I can't believe that it did that day. I still can't believe it. But anyway, at first, it was kind of fun, and everyone's running, and you're, you're with thousands and thousands of people running, and it's raining, it's light, but then it starts pouring, and then it's just, you know, cascading down upon you. And we still got smiles on our face, you know, at mile eight, and then at mile 10, it's still kind of fun. Yeah, something happened between mile 10 and right around 18. <laughs> I looked around, and there weren't so many smiles on people's faces anymore. It was, it was, it was, it was utter pain. We were, we were so uh, uh, downtrodden by the rain. We were just done. And, and big gusts of wind would come up. And it wasn't like, oh, laughter now. It was groans. Like, oh. <laughs> and I wanted to die. I couldn't bring that on. So I wanted to quit. But where do you go when you're 18 miles into a 26.2-mile race? Where do you go? Like my wife is at the end waiting for me with dry clothes. Hot food and a coffee. And I remember I just despaired of life. I just wanted to, I just wanted to be done. And I thought, like, there's no way out of this. I have to go there. But that is, there is a long way. And some of you are there. Some of you are at mile 17. Some of you are mile 18. And you're thinking, I don't even know where the finish line is. And there may not be any coffee. But the only way out of it is all the way to the end. That's the only way. And what that builds is endurance in you. You must complete it to the end. And then, then you can look on God as David did in Psalm 40. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. God's, you know, David's life was not perfect at all. But he had a new song in his mouth, and his life was different because of the God that he trusted in. So number one, <clears throat> if I can remember what I wrote here, have a joyful attitude. Number two is have an understanding mind. Know what God is trying to accomplish from that. Number three is have a submissive will. Have a submissive will. This comes from verse four. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I think the key there is let patience. Let it happen. Let it happen. A lot of fighters, right? Those trials start coming, and we're kicking against the goads like, like Paul. And remember, God has a goad probably for all of us. It's the God goad. And he is going to put you through things for a particular purpose and you can kick against it but it is very difficult to resist him he chastens us into submission like jonah and remember i'm talking about believers this is a letter to believers here and pushing on toward maturity and it says let patience have its perfect work god cannot build our character without our cooperation it doesn't happen we've got to cooperate if we resist him Chastening will come until we submit. It's when we submit to him that he can accomplish his work then. God builds character always before he calls to service. He has to work in us before he can work through us. God spent 25 years working on Abraham before he could give him the promised son. 25 years. He spent 13 years in Joseph's life putting him through various testings before he could put him on a throne. He spent 80 years preparing Moses for just 40 years of service a long time 
Spent three years, Jesus spent, with his disciples, training them, building their character. Some of you might be thinking of Daniel right now. Well, yeah, what about Daniel, though? We didn't go through Daniel. Daniel didn't go through any times of testing. He's a young guy. He's probably a teenager. Really? I wonder what happened on that long trek from the promised land to slavery in Babylon, shackled in bronze fetters and being tugged along with your friends. Do you think maybe he had a few conversations with his Lord or his friends? I I can imagine a little bit of character building in that moment. In fact, in those months of being dragged along on foot, going into captivity, right? Uh, all right, God, we're your, uh, your, uh, your chosen people, right? This doesn't look like chosen to me. This is not my definition of chosen, God. I know I'm speculating here, right? But, but something changed in Daniel because we, he arrives in Babylon and we see a, a character of a man that's unique. God use, uses all those moments to build our character, but he must have a submissive will. I'm pretty sure he doesn't have to go that far with all of us and shackle us, but Daniel went through that. Do I have your attention now, Daniel? I've got a very important job for you. And we're seeing that, aren't we? What would life have been like in Babylon without Daniel? Far different story, huh? Daniel had to be there. And that is the point here. Let patience have its perfect work. Teleos, perfect. Doesn't mean sinless, but it means finished, brought to its end, mature. That's what matures you. Let it have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete. That means the entire, the whole, the whole thing. You perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So in case we're not getting it, James is just adding that on, all right? You need to be completely absolutely perfect lacking nothing he says absence of nothing that's the whole purpose of the trials and at the end of the trials the result should be maturity right we don't lack anything of spiritual importance that's what we're talking about here spiritual importance we've got to have a submissive will we've got to submit to what god is going to do in and through those trials and number five uh, sorry number four have a believing heart or in verse 5, have a believing heart. So we have a submissive will, we have a believing heart. Look at verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You have to have a believing heart here. And what's really fascinating to me is verse 5 starts with us asking for strength to get through the trial. No. Wisdom. Isn't that interesting? He's talking about you need to get through these trials. You've got to patiently endure. So then, then go to God and ask for strength. But he doesn't say that. He says go to God and ask for wisdom. Now why do we need wisdom? Why? Why? Wisdom. Why not strength? Why not patience? Why not even grace? Why not deliverance? That's probably what you pray. Hey, get me out of this. He says, no, don't ask for any of those things. Go to ask for wisdom. Why wisdom? Why do we need wisdom when we're going through the trials? We need wisdom and catch this. Please don't miss this. We need wisdom because we need to ask God to help us not to waste the opportunities that will be gained from going through the trial. So many, so many opportunities wasted. Because we bicker, we complain, we don't submit, we fight, we refuse, we just pray for deliverance, I want the pain to end, get me out of this, get me out of this, get me out of this. But I need wisdom so that I will look at the situation and say, God, you want to teach me something here, you want to give me an opportunity to mature, help me not to waste this. There's an amazing line at the end of Saving Private Ryan, the World War II movie, and, and Ryan is just a private out there, right, in the, in the, in the army. And a group of guys are, are going in uh, to occupy territory to just rescue this one man. I don't want to spoil it for you, but I'm going to. They pretty much all die except for Ryan. That's pretty much what happens. But the last guy tells Ryan this. He says this, don't waste it. 
Don't waste it. What was he saying? We all just paid the highest price we could possibly pay. We all gave our lives for you. (laughs) So make it count. And that's what we have to do. We have to go into that attitude. Okay, this is a difficult time, but I want to make it count. So give me wisdom that I might know how I can not waste the opportunity, but make it count. Help me um, to understand how to use the circumstances for my good and for your glory. That's why I need wisdom. Because guess what? My flesh is telling me something completely different. My flesh is saying, no, enough, stop, done, get me out. That's what my flesh says. But no, I need to pray for wisdom. It says pray for wisdom. If you lack it, pray for that. Let him ask of God. Let him ask of God. Here's an amazing promise of scripture. If you ask, he's going to give it. Why? Well, that's an amazing thing to ask for in the middle of a trial. That's why. Right? That's like Solomon saying, yeah, you know, I want to rule. Uh, give me all the wealth and power. You know, give me all this. But he doesn't ask for that. What, what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. And God says, you know, that was the right thing to ask for. So I'm going to give you all the other things anyway. Those are the things we go for. He says, no, ask for wisdom. Get that. And guess what? He'll give it to you. Liberally, he says. Haplos, the Greek word means openly and sincerely without bargaining. God is not going to bargain with you. Oh, I'll give you some wisdom, but then you're going to have to do this. And like, you get to a place in your spiritual maturity where you're able to ask for wisdom sincerely from God, for God in those trials, he's going to give it to you. No questions asked. He will give it to you. It's a promise of scripture. It's promised to us. Matthew 7, Jesus says, ask it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? We've got to ask for the good things, though. We've got to ask for the good things. Wisdom is a good thing to ask for in the midst of a trial. It comes from our Father. Our request for wisdom, though, must be backed by the genuine trust in God's character and his purpose and his promises. That's what he goes on to talk about here. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without, without reproach. So that means without uh, reprimand. He wants you to ask, and he wants to give it to them. And, he says, and it will be given to him. But verse 6, he says this, let him ask in faith with no doubting. It has to be backed with a deep trust in God's character and purposes for the trial. If you're really just going, okay, I'm, just, I'm supposed to ask for that, but you really, your heart's not really there. I'm supposed to, I'm just, apparently that's what I'm supposed to do because God says I've got to, that's not the right attitude, right? But a genuine trust in God's purposes for what he wants to accomplish with no doubting, then you will be granted it. But if you ask with doubting, here's what you can expect. You're going to be tossed around violently by the storm. You, you are going to go through it brother sister (laughs) you're going to be tossed around violently because you're not anchored in the truth you not you haven't taken god uh, at his word and that's what it says you're you're like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind just up and down and up and down and 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 people live their lives like that i would just get sick and vomit i think i but you do right you're up here and then down here and up here and then down here and up here and down here and if you see that in your life this is where i would go I would go, I I am not supposed to be feeling that. I'm supposed to be anchored in truth. Even when difficulties arise, this is the steady, steady stream of the believer right here, right here. But we are, our our, our emotions are up here and down here and up here and down here. And our lives are all over the place. He says, listen, you got to ask for wisdom and not doubt. We have to take God at his word. We have to ask and not doubt Hebrews 11 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We have to have that kind of faith in him. And if we don't ask in faith and we have doubting, then we're going to be tossed around violently by the storm, and we're not going to receive anything from the Lord. That's what he says. Verse 7, Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Nothing's going to come. There's not going to be any uh, way out that you're going to see. You're not going to find the comfort. You're not going to find the peace. You're not going to find the wisdom because you asked with doubting is what he says. 
And you'll also continue to be unstable in life because of the double-mindedness. That's the word he uses in verse 8, a double-minded man. It's dipsychos. It's wavering. It's uncertain. It really means a person of divided interest. Divided interest. It really isn't one who really is after spiritual maturity, is really after those things. Really divided interest is, yeah, I kind of want that but I really like this too. (laughs) He's like the ancient Israel whom Elijah rebuked in 1 Kings 18.21. Elijah says this. He came to the people and he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Sad answer. Sad that it was no answer. There's a greater danger, I think, that this immaturity can lead to, and that is, Um, the one that's found in Ephesians 4. It's a similar sort of uh, visual given to us in Ephesians 4.14 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. People who go through trials and circumstances like that and, yes, uh, proclaim believers, what that eventually does is leads to a place where the doubt comes in terms of doctrine. And they're carried away by cunning craftiness and deceitfulness of of men. That's where it goes. When God's not trusted, things go from bad to worse. Although this person may claim to be a believer, the actions that they are taking reveal otherwise. When you go through severe trial, turning into human resources rather than trusting the Lord alone for answers and for help, turn to him alone. He's like that person that's serving two masters right? Jesus says that won't work, right? He says no one can serve two masters in Matthew 6. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. That's what Jesus says. You can't, it doesn't work. You can try. It just doesn't work, he says. And that's the double-minded man. There's a divided interest there. And fifth and final point, and we'll end with this, is they'll have a humble spirit. Have a humble spirit. It's verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, a lot of people think this is just a strange sort of interjection, and now James is all of a sudden talking about, the poor man and the rich man, but he's not. He's really still talking about going through trials and temptations, but he's giving us a practical example. He's using the great sort of, uh, you know, social divide in life, the poor and the rich. Today, we've made up another one. We call it the middle class. That actually doesn't exist. Everyone in this room is rich. I want you to know that, okay? When you see the real poor of this world and the majority of the people in the world are poor, you are filthy, stinking rich, There's no middle class. We are rich, you guys. Those of the Western world are absolutely rich. And that's why James doesn't go, oh, there's a rich man and a poor man, and there's someone in the middle. There is no middle. You're poor or you're rich. And most of us are rich. And he he uses this divide because the world looks at those two and goes, well, ah, ah, well, there's the ones that are blessed and the ones that aren't, right? The poor person and the rich person. He goes, well, let's look at that example. That's why he's doing that. Does that make sense? He's just taking a, a nice social experiment here. He's let's look at the poor and the rich, the great social divide. He says the, about the poor man first, let the lowly brother, that's what that is, the poor man, the lowly brother, and this is a Christian. So that's a, a Christian allowed to be in a poor state. And, and just to, as a side note, you're like, what, what, what are we talking about here? You have to understand the early Christians of the early church predominantly were made up of slaves, predominantly. Okay, so you had a lot of slaves um, who had nothing. They had a master, and that was it. He would take care of them, but they were poor. They had nothing of their own. A lot of them were the early slaves in the Roman Empire. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. His exaltation. So the poor, low state of a poor man that society looks down and says, you're the dregs of society. You're the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. God says, no, you're at an exalted place. This is where you are. This is where I see you as. And the reason is, is because it sort of has an advantage over the rich person. Because the rich person is more inclined and likely to trust in his what? His possessions. But the poor man doesn't have that. 
He's not, he doesn't have that fallback on kind of situation there. And he says, listen, you, if you're poor, you know, I look at you as exalted, right? You have no bread. I'm the bread of life. You have no water. I'm the water of life, right? I have, you're, you know, you don't have, you don't have a, 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 I'm your master. I'm your father, right? I, you have everything in me. You're an exalted uh, position uh, here. And you can't trust in material positions because you don't have possessions because they don't, they don't have them. They have the mind of, of, of Paul. They can have this kind of mind. Paul writes in Romans 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. They can have that kind of attitude much, uh, much easier. I'm, ju- I'm just a child of God because I got, I got nothing else here. I can look at that way easier and God says, you're at an exalted position. But what about the rich? Verse, verse 10, the rich in his humiliation. So the, lo- the lowly brother should glory or boast, that's what he says, in his exalted position. And the rich should boast in his humiliation. Wow. Now, no doubt, no doubt, in a time of persecution with this early church here, there are people who had possessions. They had homes. And they either had to flee them and leave them behind as they fled persecu- their persecutors or they were, they were possessed or what have you. But there were many that probably had possessions and now they don't have them. The believer who is materially well off should rejoice when those things come because they teach him the, the transitory nature of material things. They just don't last. And that's why James talks more about it. He says that's, that's just the nature of the rich man, right? The sun rises with scorching heat. It just burns up the grass. The flower has gone, Right? The beautiful appearance of those things perishes. He said, that's just like the rich man who, who pursues those things. They're not there very long. So if you're the poor man, glory that God has put you in an exalted position. And if, if you're rich, uh, if you're rich in this, so you got the poor, you got the rich, right? He says, listen, you're in an exalted position here. But if you're here, you need to bring yourself down to here. And they're equal, right? They're in the same place. And many times God will bring those trials to bring that person there and it should be looked on upon as a a, a a glorious thing that is a good thing to go through because maybe sometimes being here my mind my attitude is just reliance on those those blessings um, and maybe looking upon them as my own accomplishments and where does all this come what where, where does this take us it, it culminates in verse 12 blessed is the man who endures Temptation. Now, this is the same word we've been using as uh, reading as trials. I think it should be trials here as well, because I don't think he's changed the subject yet. But blessed is the man who endures temptation or trials, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So what he's saying here is you go through temptations and trials in terms of the ones that God puts you through, the trials, not the temptations. Um, you come out on the other end approved. It, it, it brings an approval by God. Yes, you did it. You're well done. And his approval brings something else. What does it bring? It says the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Perseverance doesn't result in salvation and eternal life, but it is the result and evidence of salvation and eternal life. Does that make sense? That's the difference. So you persevering doesn't get you salvation. Those who are saved evidence it, by persevering. He said, what do you get through that? The crown of life. And the point is, is, is this. On earth, on earth here then, two, two things to close on. There's maturity in life. As you're going through these things, what you're trying to accomplish is maturity. Spiritual growth, right? Sanctification. I want to be more and more made like Christ. That's the purpose of every single one of us on earth here so that others can see Christ in me. Right and fulfill the great commission. You have no other purpose than that. We still do work and we still raise kids and we still do all those things, right? But that's the main goal and emphasis behind everything we do. Maturity of life, sanctification, becoming like Christ, that others may see Christ in me. But what happens in heaven? A crown of life. A crown of life. That's the great goal here that he pushes us to. And he says it's to those who love him. That is the Bible definition of a genuine believer. That is, that is genuine believer 101. Those who love him. 1 John 4, 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So, 
in the end here, we're blessed. We're blessed because we got through the trials. We're blessed because what that has done is that has allowed us to grow. God has shaped our character. And through it all, it's proven that we are indeed genuine believers. And we can look forward to that crown in heaven. Amen. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your rich word. And I thank you so much for the encouragement and challenge that it brings. None of us are immune to the trials of this life. None of us are immune to the times of testing that you put us through. But we can go through them with the right attitude. We can go through them with a spirit of humility, wanting to grow, wanting wanting to let it happen that you might um, finish your work in us and make us complete, lacking nothing. God, would you help us to do that? It's so easier said than done. It's so easy to stand here and read these words, but to do that in practice, practice is difficult. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, each and every one, to pray for the, and ask for the one thing you tell us to ask for, wisdom. Lord, that's not, not my fallback, I'll admit. When difficulties arise, I, I don't first run and go, God, can you give me wisdom that I, I might not waste this opportunity? Mm-hmm. I typically fall to my my fleshly response, my emotional response. Help us not to do that. God, you've you've told us if we just ask for wisdom, you will give it to us. But we're your people. You're our God. We're the the clay and you're the potter. Make us and mold us for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.